right, everyone. Good morning. <laughs> um, I never know when I'm supposed to start talking at the end of that video. I probably should have just jumped right in. I don't, I don't know, but it was fun for us to stare at each other awkwardly for a second or two. Um, listen, I'm, I'm excited about jumping into the book of James. Before I do that, I'm going to take a moment to pray. And before I pray, uh, as I was sitting there uh, this morning as we were trying to worship and think through what it looks like to lift up Jesus, one of the things that have going on in my head that I felt like I, I need to lay out for us is I want to make sure I tell us how we are supposed to actually worship when we're engaging a sermon. This is like my little mini sermon before the sermon, okay? So you get two for the price of one today. I mean, I'm double delivering here. Let me just tell you what I'm talking about. Uh, worshiping is not a passive action that we do. We don't watch worship. We don't just listen to a sermon to be entertained. Here's what I think God wants to have happen. He wants you to engage a sermon with like actively engage it. Your job is not to sit there and listen to me and hope I tell a funny joke and do a sick little cartwheel across the stage to get you woken up. Your job is to listen with hunger. You want a heart that's hungry to hear God and to meet with him and to hear what he would say about himself. And you want to listen humbly. You want God to, I, I can't believe I'm actually alliterating right now on accident. Uh, you, you want to listen humbly, hungry and humbly. You want to humbly have God walk through your heart. You want him to say, is there something you're supposed to repent of? Is there something you're supposed to see about him? Is there something that he's calling you to do by his power, not your own? And listen, you also, you, you want to listen with discernment. Uh, you want to make sure that what I'm saying is true and right and accurate according to the word, not to tradition, not to something you've heard from any other pastor, not to what makes you feel better, but what Jesus has already communicated clearly through his word. And so, for us to do that, you may not feel hungry this morning. You may feel tired. You, you may not feel humble. You may feel great. You, you may not feel like you're able to discern. And that's why we need to ask God to help us listen in a way that's an act of worship, all right? So, so would you bow your head and close your eyes? And we're going to pray again. And I'm not ashamed to do it over and over and over again because we need him. Heavenly Father, God, we do need you. We we need you and we, we want you. We, we want to meet with you. God, we want to have hearts that would hear what you would say to us. We, we want to humbly obey you and, and repent when we need to repent and obey when we need to obey and worship when we need just to be in awe of who you are. And God, we admit that for every single one of those things, we need to do a work in our hearts because all by ourselves, we'll, we will not be able to respond appropriately. And so God, I pray that you would help us, that you would meet us here, that if we're tired, you would wake us up by your spirit. If, if we're cold to you, I pray you would stir our hearts. God, I pray you would make us new. Don't make us old and traditional. Make us new and fresh and alive. I, I pray we'd be a real people that really meet with the almighty living God today. God, protect us from just going through the motions and make us worshipers of you. Make us your church. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'm going to ask you to engage with me for a second. And what I mean by that is I'm actually going to ask you a question and I want you to think about it and say the answer out loud. All right, now this is going to get real awkward if you don't agree to do this with me, but, but I'm going to do it anyways because this morning we're going to be talking about identity. Uh, we're going through the book of James and what he hits on today hits to the core of how we measure ourselves, how we evaluate ourselves. We, we each on our own have decided what our identity is, who we are and what, what's the, at the core of, of our being. We have our own measuring stick that we've set up 
that we evaluate whether or not we're doing great or whether or not we're doing lousy. Right? Does, does this make sense what I'm saying? You may not agree with it. It's true. You have an identity. You have a self-measuring stick that you measure yourself by. So here's what I want you to do. I want to take a moment. and I, Now, don't say Jesus right now, okay? Jesus is not allowed to be your answer. Okay, we'll get to Jesus in a minute. But, but apart from Jesus, I want to talk about the things that sometimes we shift to measuring ourselves on apart from Jesus, okay? So do you have any of those things in your head right now? Just nod if you do. Oh, yes, you nodded. You're getting better. I'm proud of you. Okay, so I want you to say a few of these out loud. What are some ways that we measure ourselves? Work. Our performance at work, whether or not we did a good job. Uh, we sit there and say, listen, if I did this type of job at work, that means I am doing awesome. You can, I'm respectable. I'm happy with myself. I delivered. I performed just right at my job. Therefore, I am good. Right? Is that too? What was the other one? Family, oh, listen, this is great. Junior did great in softball or, or in t-ball or my kids are well-behaved or they don't do bad things like other people's kids. And if my family is happy and they, they behave around the dinner table, like, listen, your kids will break you of that real quick. But if I'm out and about and they're behaving and people are like, your kids are so good, like, there's this measuring stick that I've got that, listen, I'm, I may not have a lot of money, but, man, I got a family that's doing awesome. My identity is wrapped up in how my kids are doing. And then they graduate and leave. And all the wheels fall off because my identity is left. What else? What else do we measure? Oh, I had like three there. Others, performance, others. So what other people say about us? Is that what you meant by others? Yeah, their opinion of us. Do they respect me? Do they think, do they have a good opinion of me? My uh, is my Facebook or Twitter or whatever persona, is it respectable enough that when people see all my pictures with the 40th take of just everything just right, what do they think about me? What do they think about my performance, about my, my persona, about everything about me? We measure ourselves on that. Anything else we measure ourselves on? What was that? Oh, man, marriage. And I heard another one, status. Status and marriage. Yeah, if your marriage is going great, right, you can look at other people and like those people, listen, I'm, I'm going to get too raw here. Those people are divorced. We're not divorced. Those people fight in front of other people. We don't, we would never fight in front of other people. I know the secret to a good marriage. I just say yes, ma'am, right? I've got the secret and that's my measuring stick to a good marriage. And if my marriage is going great, then I'm doing all right. My status, I think that's what you said, status, right? Status becomes this thing of, I guess that's my uh, influence, my, the way you perceive me. Do I walk into town and people know who I am? Do I, do I have the, the big dogs in town that know about me? And, and when I walk in places, they know that I'm a somebody. And now we measure ourselves based on our status, What's your status? That's a great question there. Any, any other ones before I move on here? Man, it is really hard to hear like four things at once. I, what, what were they? Talents? Physique? What was the other one? Neighbors. Okay, my talents, my physique, my neighbors. Yes, I don't know. I'm hard of hearing, apparently. I'm going early. It's going early, guys. I'm too young to be losing my hearing. Our neighbors, um, like if we're in the right neighborhood, how they think of us, all that other stuff. Our physique, listen, if I lost 40 pounds, I feel like you would think a lot better of me. If I had more hair in my head, 
uh, if I looked a certain way, right? Like we feel that pressure to have our body shaped into this mold of like some type of supermodel person that I don't know what they eat, but they don't eat what I eat apparently and they work out and, and our talents. Can I show up and deliver the goods? Am I skilled and talented? I, listen, we've all got all these measuring sticks that we're constantly evaluating ourselves on. And whether or not we're doing great or bad depends on how we measure on our own man-made, self-determined measuring sticks. Or maybe not our man-made measuring sticks. Maybe it's our culture's made measuring sticks. We send ourselves chasing, chasing after measuring up and adding up and our entire identity gets wrapped up in these things. And if we're not careful, not if just if we're not careful, it, uh, we will derail things in our walk with God. And what I want you to know is today is we're in the book of James. James is writing to his church who's scattered all over the place because of persecution. He's talking to them about how they deal with suffering here in the first 15 verses of James chapter one. And as he's doing that, as he's doing that, one of the things that he's gonna shift to today in that discussion about how they deal with persecution is how the gospel informs their identity. That's what he's talking about today. He's saying, how, how does who God is and what he's done on the cross for you, how does that shape and form your identity? And he hit two biggies. He's gonna hit poor and rich. That's what he's doing in verses nine through 11 today. He's gonna hit poor and rich. I just wanna hit pause real quick as I say that. And when he talks about poor, Listen, he's not talking about what some of us would define as poor. You need to think more along the lines of global poverty. Okay, and we're going to get in James chapter 1, verse 9. I'll read it in a second. But I just want to take a moment before we read it to define what poverty really looks like. Now, I remember the first time I really saw third world poverty. I don't know how many of y'all traveled out of the country and seen that. It, it has a unique experience to it. And I remember I was in seventh grade the first time I saw that. We were in another country, and we were in this dump where the poor of the poor were living, and we backed up a U-Haul trailer with food, and we were handing out food all over the place. And it was, it was a shocking experience for me. And years later, I got to, got to become a missions pastor and traveled overseas over and over and over again and got to lead groups of adults as they encountered poverty in other countries, some of them for the first time. And and one of the trips that stands out to me is we were taking a trip to Haiti, which is, can be pretty rough after those, after those earthquakes that happened several years ago. And as we were there, I had a group of adults, mainly engineers with NASA. We're, we're driving to this orphanage. We're looking at poverty that is like what most people have never seen in their entire life. And as we're driving there, as we, have we been there for several days, we begin to have conversations uh, with the adults as we're kind of discuss, man, like how do we help the people of this country? What's the best way to help them? They don't have clean water. They don't have good housing. They don't have good access to food. They don't have education. They don't have good doctors. Like you're looking at it and they're wallowing in extreme poverty and you can't help it. You start having conversations. How can we help them? We, we have so much and that discussion kept going on and on and on. We became, began to come up with solutions in our group. Like we know what the solutions are in that world. And the, these engineers are talking about water projects and road projects and electricity projects, all this stuff. And, and I'm curious to what you would say. I don't want to ask you right now, but I do wonder what solutions you would suggest for poverty. You know, the solutions that we suggest sometimes reveal what we believe is the primary cause of poverty. If, if you believe the primary cause of poverty is lack of education or lack of knowledge, then you want to provide education. If you believe the primary cause is lack of resources, you want to give money. 
If you believe it's oppressing you, you want to work for social justice. And the reality is that poverty is very complex and the causes are, are varied. They're not simplistic. We try to make it too simple. And sometimes our solutions actually do more harm than good. And here, here's why I'm going there. There's a book written called When Helping Hurts. It walks through how, how churches should be engaging the global needs of poverty and how we can do it without helping. And one of the studies this book looked at was something by the World Bank where they studied, they asked people in poverty, global poverty, what their perspective was. And I want to read some of their quotes of how people in poverty defined poverty. And I want you to listen to how they define this. It's not only material things that are lacking. They add something else to poverty apart from material things. They add identity language. They add feelings to what's happening in poverty. Not just the lack of material resources, but listen to some of these descriptions. This is from a person in Moldova. For a poor person, everything is terrible. Illness, humiliation, shame. We are cripples. We're afraid of everything. We depend on everyone. And listen to these identity moments. No one needs us. We are like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. Listen to this person from, I don't even know how to say this country, but Ganao Bissau. I think that rhymes, I don't know, but uh, this quote from one person there said this. When I don't have any food to bring to my family, I borrow mainly from my neighbors and friends. And listen to some of this identity, this measuring. They don't measure up. I feel ashamed standing before my children when I have nothing to help feed my family. I am not well when I'm unemployed. Or this person from Uganda. When one is poor, she has no say in public. She feels inferior. She has no food, so there's a famine in her house, no clothing, and no progress in her, in her family. This is the last one from Cameroon. The poor have a feeling of powerlessness and an inability to make themselves heard. Listen, I, I think it's amazing as when we look at that stuff right there that what you hear over and over and over again is they're typically talking in terms of shame and inferiority and powerlessness and humiliation Hopelessness, fear, depression, isolation, voicelessness. These are all things that the people, as they, as they interviewed hundreds of thousands of people in global, global poverty, they kept seeing these themes happen over and over and over again. These themes of what being in poverty was saying about their identity. Now listen, I've gone a, round, a long roundabout way, but Pastor James is writing to his church, and a lot of them are in extreme poverty. They've, been, they've suffered persecution. They've had to move away. They don't have any resources. They don't have uh, anyone to help them. They've probably been rejected by their family and community because they're followers of Jesus. They're co probably considered a shame to their family. They're a burden to them. They also have no voice. They're vulnerable because they're being chased by government officials. They're probably afraid of what's going to happen. They're considered a blight on society. And people like Saul are chasing them around, trying to kill them and throw them in prison. They think that their country would be better without them. They've also been labeled as a cult. And they're people that, not just, that are hunting them down. They're, they're constantly told that they are inferior to other Jews because they believe in this Messiah named Jesus. And all of this, all of this pressure means it's difficult to get a job and to get food for your family. And they probably are feeling hopeless and isolated. 
Now, now listen, I don't know how many of you are in poverty. I'm looking around thinking not many, maybe none. Not in this type of poverty. But I think you know what it's like when your identity is getting rattled and you feel rejection and shame and vulnerability and fear and powerlessness. You feel inferior. You constantly have these moments where you feel like, I don't measure up. Let me read what James says to his people. James chapter 1, verse 9, after the world's longest introduction. Uh, James 1, verse 9 says this. Let the lowly brother, that word lowly means of humble means. The person doesn't have a lot. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let me just hit pause right there. He said, listen, I want the lowly brother, the thing that James wants his lowly brother to do, the ones who don't have much, he wants them to actually boast. He wants them to say, this is the thing that I'm putting all my, my bragging. It's really tough to talk about bragging, but here's the thing that you're bragging about. Here's the thing that you're saying, this is who I am. Here's the thing that you want everyone to know about you. The lowly brother, the brother who's in poverty, the brother who's being told by all of society, you don't measure up, you're not valuable, we don't want you, we don't like you, you're a burden, get out. That person needs to boast in his exaltation, in his high position. This is unbelievable to me because here's what James is saying. He is saying, listen, to my church people who are out there suffering and everyone tells me, tells you that you're not worth it. I want you to hear something. You've actually been exalted. Now, now, here's what I don't want you to hear. Here's what James is not doing. James is not saying, man, you know what you guys need? I need you guys to have a higher view of yourself. You need to have better self-image. You need to think higher of yourself. That's not what he's saying. He's saying in their exaltation, they've been raised up to a high position. He's not telling them to look in the mirror and say, listen, you're strong, you're powerful, and doggone it, people like you. That's, that's not what James is telling his church people to do. He's telling them that Jesus did something for you when he died on the cross. He changed the measuring stick for you. When he came back from the dead and you placed your trust in him, he got rid of this measuring stick of how the culture views you. And he said, I've got a new measuring stick for you. It's the measuring stick of the gospel. And it's, it's what you need to be, have applied to you. I've adopted you and made you sons and daughters. I've given you new hearts, all because of faith, not because of works. I chose you and I saved you and I cleaned you. And the new measuring stick is what Jesus has done as you. You are measured by the work of Jesus, not your own work. And what he is telling them is when you feel beat down, he says, I want you to hear this. You've been exalted. So I took a few moments to study this week saying, okay, what, what are the ways that they've been exalted? Let me, let me read you a few verses because I want you to hear how we've been exalted. L listen to this verse right over in James chapter 2, verse 5. You just look over to the other column. It says this. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be, and look at this phrase, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Like when you get saved, one of the things Jesus says, you become an heir of the kingdom. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 9, verse 20. He says this, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Or Galatians chapter 4. Why don't you flip in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. I want you to see how believers in Jesus have been exalted by the work of Jesus. How you've been lifted up, how you've been given a high position. Galatians chapter 4, if you would turn there. 
Galatians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 4 through 7. It says this in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That's Jesus. Born of a woman. Born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law. So that we might receive okay, adoptions as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Listen, he says, Jesus came at the right time to rescue you from the law and to adopt you into his family. That means you are sons and daughters of the king of the universe. You've been adopted into the family. Look at this in verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Here's what I want you to hear. Someone who's an heir to a kingdom... Someone whose father is a king, that means you are a son or daughter of the king of the universe. You are a prince or a princess. You are royalty. Not because you were good. Not because you came to church. Not because you cleaned your life up. Because Jesus died on the cross for your sins and said, I want you and I want to clean you. I'm making you my own and you've got nothing to offer. He said, I'm making you royalty in heaven. Church, I don't know how you measure yourself, but you need to hear this measurement. When Jesus saves you, regardless of your performance or your physique or anything like that, he's saying, no matter what everyone else says about you, that you are royalty because of the work of Jesus. Whether you feel like it or not. Whether you look like it or not. Whether you act like it or not. You are royalty because Jesus decided to make you sons and daughters. You were royalty because he decided to save you. You were royalty not because he thought you would do a good job, because Jesus already did a good job on our behalf. Look around this room. In this room, if you are in Jesus, you are in a room full of people who are royalty, who are sons and daughters of the king. It's a pretty big deal, right? You may be looking around being like, I don't think so. I know these people. <laughs> you may be looking around saying, oh, if they knew me, they wouldn't think that. Here, here's the good news. We know Jesus. We know Jesus. And if he says that you and I are sons and daughters of the king, then I believe him more than I believe how you and I act or how you and I dress more than I believe how you and I make our living, more than I believe how you and I have grown up, more than I believe anything else you can throw my way, I believe what Jesus says about us. And he says that we are sons and daughters of the king. He says more. He says a lot more. Let me give you a second one. Not only are you royalty, look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says this, when you're in Jesus, he says this in verse 9 of 1 Peter chapter 2, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You're a people who are his very own, that's what it says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Here's what he just says. Not only are you royalty, but you are a holy priest. You are his special people. Because of the work of Jesus, 
The Bible says that when you get put in Jesus by faith, not by works, you become a holy priest. I want you to think about how, how crazy that is. You, you're one of the few that get to go into his presence on a regular basis. You, you get to stand there and worship him and adore him inside the veil where no one else could go. Not because you're good, not because you're clean, not because you read your Bible 10 times last week, but because Jesus died on the cross to clean you. And he is saying this, you are special to him. And he's saying that now, because of the work of Jesus in you, that you meet his holy and perfect standard, that you can be a priest that stands in front of him. I want you to hear that. He didn't change the standard. He changed you so that you actually meet his standard of holiness. You aren't just royalty. You are his holy people that are able to come before him. And he's made you meet that standard without compromising. That's how strong the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is. It makes you and I holy. Listen, I, I love this. So here's what James is telling his people. Listen, you're poor. I want you to remember what Jesus says about you. He says you're royalty. He says you're his holy priests. That's what Jesus says about you. And don't listen to what your poverty says about you. Listen to what God says about you. It's, it's awesome. There's a few implications for us in that. One of those is this. I want you to believe what God says about you more than anything else. I want you to believe what God says about you more than what other people say about you. I want you to believe what God says about you more than what you say about you. I, mean, I don't know if you're like me. I've got this thing in my head that's my own inner critic. Anybody else have that? You tortured with that? It's awful. It's a nightmare. I've got this voice in my head that is constantly telling me, Fias, you suck. <laughs> you probably should use nicer words. Oh, shouldn't have said that out loud. But he's constantly telling me how much I stink, how much I mess up, how much I fail, how much I don't measure up. There's always this voice inside my head. And there's the gospel that says something different than what my own voice tells me. Listen, I want you to believe what God says about you more than what you believe about you and what you say about you. And I want you to believe what God says about you more than what your failures say about you. Maybe I don't need the voices in my head telling me I stink. I just said I had voices in my head. That's awkward. Um, <laughs> Maybe I don't need that inner critic telling me I stink. I literally can look at a life that I've ruined. I can look at a marriage that I've wrecked. I can look at kids that I've totally jacked up. I can look at jobs that I've screwed up. I can look at a million things. I can look at my track record and every single bit of it tells me something different than what the gospel of Jesus says. And when you place your trust in Jesus, there's this moment that you're saying, I really believe what Jesus did on the cross actually is bigger and stronger than every other thing that my past tells me about me. Jesus says something different, and I want you and me to regularly remind ourselves that I'm going to believe what God says more than what anything else says about me. There's a second thing. I already had you look around the room, but, but that means that in this room are followers of Jesus and we should treat one another as if we're actually 
meeting with royalty, as actually meeting with people who are special to God. The, the church should be the place where people who are in Jesus get treated with more respect and more dignity than any other place in the world. That means if you walk in here and you are in Christ and you've been homeless for eight weeks and you smell awful, that when we find out you're a son or daughter of the king, we tra treat you based on the gospel truths about you, not the things we smell or see on you. That means we treat each other not based on our past, but based on the good news of Jesus. That means when we get together with one another, we're longing to hear the work of the king and his fellow sons and daughters' lives sitting across the table from me. That means when I interact with you, I actually think I'm interacting with a holy priest of God. That means you and these seats can be used by God as a holy priest, his special people, to minister to people that are right next to you, regardless of your past, and exclusively based on the gospel work of Jesus in you. Church, that is good news, man. James is right in these people saying, I want to remind you of the gospel of Jesus. You aren't lowly, useless blights on society in poverty. You're sons and daughters of the king who are holy priests. That's really good news. But those aren't the only people James talks to in his church. It's not just poor people who are told they're worthless. And this one, we might need to hear more than that one. I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you needed that one more. But he also talks to rich people. Look at verses 10 and 11. Look at what he says here. He says, uh, I'm going to get a run up, go back to verse 9. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. We just went over that. And the rich, and the rich in his humiliation. That's a crazy word. The rich person, he needs to boast in his low status. Why? Because like a flower of the grass, he'll pass away. Just temporary. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. It flowers, its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is strong. He, he talks to the rich in that moment. He says, listen, you're, you're temporary. Your riches will fade like you have no idea when your life will be over but all the stuff you've got, everything that tells you you're strong and powerful and competent and worthy to be listened to, it will all fade away. Man, the rich are supposed to boast in their low status. I, I think I see how James got there. I, I mentioned that conversation with those engineers in Haiti. Well, as we listened and talked about solutions, here's one of the things I, I noticed over and over and over again as I took groups on trips to poverty. Our groups would quickly begin to say, you know what, uh, there'd be like this really subtle air of arrogance that would begin to pop out. Like, man, if they knew what I knew, like, like, like my knowledge and self-effort kept me from being in that position. It was like this arrogance that, that I know something. I know how to be successful. I know how to work hard. I know how to get an education. I know how to crawl my way out. And, and maybe you do work hard. Maybe you are really competent. Maybe you really are educated. Maybe you've really made amazing choices. Maybe you have. 
But for the rich, the danger is you think that your competence and your good choices and your hard work, you think that those are the things that make you successful. And they didn't. Listen, you could literally wake up tomorrow and God could decide, you're not going to walk anymore and the stock market's going to crash and everything you have is going to go bye-bye. Just like that. Your success, your experience, your determination can't keep that from happening to you. It can all be gone and there's no planning you can do to stop it. And if we're not careful, for those of us who are rich or wealthy or successful Here's what happens. The entire world around you is constantly telling you, man, you're awesome. Look at how successful you are. Look at how educated you are. Look at how competent you are. You do things right when no one else does it right. Listen, especially in church, we're great at this, right? At church, the way you get on boards and the way you get positions of power is you're a good businessman or a good politician or you've got influence in the community. And if you know how to run a business and you know how to make money, then you obviously know how to lead a church. And churches all over the place will compromise on godly character because the person is a successful businessman or businesswoman. Listen, what are we doing? The Bible says that for the rich, our celebration is not this arrogance of look at what we did and look at how secure we are and how we've got something to offer. Our boast is that we're low. There's humiliation. Well, we're supposed to be boasting of something that we're not going to believe all the hype of that everything around us tells us about ourselves. Do you know what I mean? Have you experienced this? How easy it is to believe that you know more than those around you because you've been so successful. Listen, church, that's not the way of Jesus. There's ways that we've been made low and and I'm going to take a moment and just, I want to tell you two ways that we can, how we have low status. All right, I just told you how you have high status. Can I tell you how the gospel says you and I have low status? Here's the first one. Let me read this. It's, if you look over one page to Hebrews chapter 13. Didn't have to go searching far for it. It was already right there, the page over. Hebrews 13, which is right next to James chapter 1. Listen to what he says in verse 12. He says this. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. He's outside the gate where all the dirty things go. He's out in the dumpster. Outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So here's what he's saying. Jesus suffered. Jesus was rejected. Jesus was cast out. Jesus was suffered to make us clean. Verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. You see what, what the writer of Hebrews says there? Listen, we serve a rejected Savior. And when we follow him, we go out to join him in that rejection. Yeah, in the future, we've got this amazing thing that God's promised for us. But our Savior was despised and rejected. And if we follow him then we're embracing that rejection. It, and it says we're doing this because we don't pursue the city right now. We pursue the one in the future. We're pursuing the kingdom. You guys, this is, this is really, really good news. I think it says this. 
We embrace rejection today for the reward of tomorrow. We embrace rejection today for the reward of tomorrow. Like we're sitting here saying, listen, I know all this stuff around me says I'm good and I'm strong and I'm competent. And you should respect me and you should listen to me and I have something to offer. But what we know about the gospel is that we serve a rejected Savior. And that means we are rejecting these other measurements and we're accepting the one that everyone else rejects. That we're identifying with the homeless man that was executed by the Roman government. We're identifying with the Savior that's rejected by the world. We're embracing that rejection. We're not embracing all the good things that our stuff says about us. There's a second thing. Listen to 1 Timothy. Or you can flip over to 1 Timothy if you want. 1 Timothy chapter 6. So one way that we're brought low is we embrace the rejected Savior. That's who we serve. We join him in that rejection. But 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 17 it says this, Paul's giving instruction to Timothy on how to talk to the rich people in his church. And he says this, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Don't get arrogant. Uh, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Don't trust your money. It can't save you. It doesn't make you secure. God does it. You charge them. Don't get haughty. Don't get arrogant. Don't set your hopes on your stuff. But on God, you trust God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they might take hold of that which is truly life. Here's what I think he's saying there. He's saying, listen, you don't get haughty, you don't trust your wealth. God provided it, not you. And he provided the stuff that you have. He provided the success that you have. He provided the respect that you have. He provided it by himself, all alone. He provided it so that you could be generous on his behalf today. In other words, you're not an owner, you're a steward. You didn't create the success, God gifted it to you to steward it for his name's sake. I, I think that we trust God for security tomorrow so that we can be generous today. That's what he told them. You trust God to handle it so you can be generous today. It's his money, not your own. You're not the owner of it. You're not the creator of it. You're the steward of it. So listen, for the rich, I think what he wants to say is, listen, you're a broken sinner just like everyone else. And if it weren't for the grace of God, you'd be in the same place as every other person in poverty. Your low status is this. You didn't create your wealth, whether you think you did or not. You didn't create your success. Jesus gave that to you. You don't own it. You steward it for him. You're not an owner, you're a steward. That, that's a lowly status. It's not one of boasting and pride. So church, I want to ask you a few questions this morning as we wrap up here. James is telling the rich and the poor in his church, do not judge yourself based on any other measuring stick apart from the gospel of Jesus. If the world tells you you're low and useless, you need to hear what King Jesus says. You're royalty and you're a holy priest. If the world tells you you're great and you're strong and you're successful and you're amazing, don't listen to them. You need to hear from Jesus that you need to embrace rejection with him and that you are a low steward, not an owner and creator of your success. And I want to know, how are you measuring yourself today? Today, do you come in here feeling broken and weak and small, feel like a failure, feel rejection, 
and voiceless. I want to remind you of the gospel of Jesus. That he values you and loves you and he sent his son to die on the cross for you. He doesn't need your performance. He did all the performance. He tells you you're valued because of the work of Jesus. I want you to believe that more than anything else. If you come in here feeling self-sufficient and strong, independent, successful, wise on your own merits, listen, I want to encourage you, don't, don't believe your own hype. Believe the truth of the gospel that if there was no one else in the world, he still had to die for your successful persons. You still needed a savior. You still are a broken sinner. You didn't create your wealth. God gave it to you. You don't own it. You're a steward. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. We need to look at ourselves through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I want to give you a moment to kind of respond to whatever God would have said to you this morning. Listen, if you've been measuring yourself by a ruler other than the gospel, that's been your identity, something else, and we all slip into it. You can slip in and out of this all the time. If that's how you've been viewing yourself, you just take a moment to, to repent of that. And ask God to help you view yourself in light of the good news of Jesus. If you've been treating other people around you as if they're not sons and daughters of the king or they're not holy priests, would you repent of that? And ask God to give you eyes to see the people next to you as actually people who are redeemed by the Savior, who have value and dignity. Listen, if you felt lowly and rejected, I want you to remember that Jesus loves you and he died for you and you came back to life. And if you're in him, you're royalty. If you feel unable to be used because of your past or because of your inefficiency, I want you to remember that Jesus died on the cross for you and he came back from the dead. If he's strong enough to come back from the dead, then he is strong enough to use you in great and mighty ways for his namesake. Listen, for some of you, um, the question for you is, are you actually a son or daughter of the king? The question is not, are you in church? The question is not, are you good? The question is, have you actually placed your trust in Jesus and been given a brand new heart? because of the gospel work of Jesus? Or are you just religious? Listen, if you're not a son or a daughter, I wanna encourage you, if that's what God is doing in your heart right now, don't resist him, trust him. Tell him you believe he died on the cross. Tell him you believe he came back from the dead and tell him you want him to save you and him and him alone and nothing else. And the Bible says he'll give you a new heart, he'll clean you, and he'll make you a son or a daughter. He'll do a lot of work in you. And finally, for everyone here, I pray that you'd have a moment right there in your seat where you would worship him. You say, God, you're good. I don't have to pursue measurement based on my performance, my stuff. You did all the work.
and I'm measured by the work of Jesus on the cross, not my own. I pray that would be good news to you this morning. In a moment, I'm gonna pray. At the end of our service, we'll have our pastors down in front. If you need to speak to someone, we'll be available. If you need to have more time with God, you can do that in your seat. We're not gonna rush you. But let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, we believe you. We believe that you died on the cross. We believe that you were buried. We believe that you came back from the dead. And we believe that we get in a relationship with you just by trusting you, by your grace. That is it. And so God, I pray for us. I pray we would believe what you say about us. I pray we'd believe that we're sons and daughters of the King. God, I pray we'd believe that we're holy priests. God, I pray we'd believe that we're just stewards. God, I pray we would see ourselves rightly based on what you say, not what everything else around us says. And I pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.